You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing Bobby Black. All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Blazin. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. I want to start off this week by wishing all of you daddies out there a happy belated Father's Day, which, of course, was this past Sunday, uh, including my own dad, Bobby Sr., and my brother, John. Uh, sadly, Father's Day tends to take on a new meaning for those who have lost their dads, particularly for my guest today, whose dad would have been 76 years old this past Saturday had he not passed away back in 2010. The dad I'm speaking of is the late, great Hemperer himself, Jack Herrer, and my guest today is his son, Dan Herrer. Dan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Dan, your father also happens to be the father of the entire marijuana legalization movement. That practically makes us siblings, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I... Uh... It's hard for me to put that kind of label on my father because, you know, he, he was not there alone. And he was certainly not the inspiration for those who came before him, you know, those who influenced him, like Captain Ed Adair and others who, uh, along with my father, uh, dedicated their lives in the 70s and 80s, pushing the envelope for the understanding of at that time, it was just primarily cannabis legalization, and it wasn't until my father really kind of understood through his own uh, development and understanding of the importance of hemp and how it affected us as a country or the world in general over uh, many thousands of years that, that he became the primary, I guess, Figure? leader of the hemp movement which was really quite a 
contrast to the cannabis movement at the time. For the benefit of my listeners who aren't as familiar with your dad's uh, work as you and I and most of the cannabis community are, I'm just going to give a little background. Jack Herr was uh, one of the most beloved and revered figures in the cannabis movement. He was sort of like an anti-anslinger, I like to call him. Your dad was made it his mission in life to dispel the decades of myths and misinformation put out by the government and the corporate media and replace them with facts. And the way that he did that, uh, the most notable way, uh, at least, was by collecting all of the historical data, articles, pamphlets, propaganda, and everything else he could find that was relating to cannabis and compiling them all into his magnum opus, uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. It, it was first published in 1985, and this 330-page compendium is the undisputed Bible of cannabis activism. Now in its 12th printing and has been translated into a dozen languages and has been in print for over 31 years, I remember I was introduced to it for the first time by my best friend Paul back in high school, who actually incidentally was also the person who introduced me to High Times uh, shortly after that. But when I first was exposed to The Emperor Wears No Clothes, I was so blown away by all of this information and all, and a lot of it from the government itself, pro-cannabis stuff, you know, hemp for victory, all that kind of stuff. And I was so inspired by it that I went and I did a marijuana legalization speech for my public speaking class. Uh, and uh, I, I just remember being totally inspired by it. How old were you when you first became aware of your dad's work and the book? Oh, man. It almost seems as... Uh, it's been a part of my life since preteen. I didn't really understand much of it as a boy, other than my father was a little crazy to me. Um, and and you know, to to most of us, you know, we we didn't understand it. You know, we didn't have the, the capability to to really grasp what he was talking about in the you know early seventies and even into the eighties. You know, I, I I knew he was driven, and I knew as I became a young adult that the cannabis laws were truly unjust. But it didn't really hit me until uh, probably a couple of years after the book came out, and I really paid attention to what it was saying and how it applied to, uh, selfishly enough, my own life. You know, I didn't realize how much the world had changed because of prohibition laws and regulatory issues with regards to uh, enforcing these laws. When more people started getting sentenced to prison for pot possession and growing, and they just seemed to be so unbelievably harsh during the 80s uh, and even into the 90s, and still currently in some states, they're very uh, almost, well, they are inhumane. It, but it didn't really sink into me until I was in my 20s. And uh, from that point on, it just became part of the family mantra, in a sense, hmm. uh, for my younger siblings and myself uh, as we were becoming adults. What was it like growing up with Jack as your dad? Did you ever feel like maybe you were kind of competing for his attention with his with his activism, with his mission? No. No, I mean, unfortunately, my parents divorced early on in my childhood, and uh, we didn't spend uh, a lot of time uh, with my dad through the 70s and 80s as he was 
you know, really diving into what was, you know, the cannabis laws, what was hemp, um, what was the history, you know, and he was finding himself during those years as well. So a lot of that was, you know, my father growing as a human being and us learning how to, you know, become our own persons, uh, you know, between my brothers and sisters, you know, we all look to develop who we were going to become. So there was separation at times because, you know, of, of his endeavors, but, I don't think there was ever any feeling of competition between any of us or just for his attention. The the lack of him being around in a lot of situations was just normal for us. But you did get to spend time with him, and when you did, that time was, was good. Oh, when we were together, it was always a good time. We appreciated each other. We all loved each other. I'm sure he wished that he had more time to spend with us. And my younger siblings during, you know, their adolescence and uh, teenage and young adult lives, they were able to truly grasp and, and feel uh, what the magnitude of what he was doing and the importance of it through the 80s and then early 90s. Uh, because, you know, they were uh, much younger than my more immediate brothers uh, in age. They were young enough to be able to travel with my father and uh, really kind of get a sense of who he was on the road when he was uh, speaking and engaging uh, people in other states and, you know, countries. So they they have a much different perspective than uh, myself or uh, yeah. my older brother. What about yourself? When did you start using cannabis and was knowing about your dad <laughs> in any way uh, influencing that? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, I've always been around cannabis as a, as a young kid. I didn't really get involved with it until uh, high school. And um, at that time, I didn't understand it very well. It just was uh, something that I enjoyed uh, with my friends. As far as my dad, I never really talked to him about whether he supported it or not, nor did I you know, sit down and smoke with them as a young adult, or I should say a young adolescent. That really didn't happen for me until uh, I was in my late teens. You mentioned earlier um, Captain Ed was an old friend, a uh, good, very good friend of your dad's. I know that your dad, before becoming an activist, he had opened a head shop back in the 70s. Is that right? Did he open it with Captain Ed, or were they just both opening head shops? <laughs> no. Ed was already a longtime owner of, of a shop in the San Fernando Valley in Van Nuys called Heads and Highs. And my father, in his early years of becoming a cannabis user, wrote a silly little book called Grass. It was just this comically drawn, sort of, sort of on the furry freak brothers type of artwork inside version of you know how to understand the cannabis that you were getting and what you should pay for it and you know how to grade the cannabis from a scale of one to ten and uh you know looking back at it now it's it's quite a comical uh, little book but back then it was actually taken very seriously and my father uh, was out trying to get the book out so he wandered into uh, heads and highs to see if they would pick it up uh, and sell it through their store, and he met Captain Ed, and they became fast friends. And um, subsequently, in a sense, my father found 
as true of a, a partner, uh, a, a lifelong love and admiration for somebody than most people as far as their dedication to a particular cause and to one another's uh, issues and families. And uh, they truly became, uh, you know, soulmates within the cannabis movement. Your dad also uh, had like a pipe company initially, right? AHA Pipe Company? He had an idea for a pipe of pipe in the early 90s. He thought that this pipe that he designed would be a better way to smoke cannabis uh, and have it be cooler, you know, in your mouth and on your throat. And uh, he created this pipe. And I believe that he probably did name the company AHA, but... AHA initially was a publishing company and uh, was one of the publishers of The Emperor over the years. Speaking of uh, Emperor again, you know, it's funny. In preparation for this interview, I pulled out of the shelf my copy of The Emperor Wears No Clothes just to kind of look through it again. It had been some years since I uh, read it. And I came across something really that I wasn't expecting. Um, During my early days at High Times, I had lent my copy of the book to a friend and, of course, never got it back. Um, And years later, while we were cleaning out our offices in preparation to move to a new location, I saw another copy of about the same edition uh, with a white-covered one. Uh, I think they switched it to a black cover at some point. But um, I noticed a copy in a pile of books that were being given away, so I grabbed it and made that my new copy. And I hadn't really looked at it in a long time. So when I pulled it off the shelf to look through it, I realized something. I actually got Steve Bloom's copy of the book because there's wow. an there's an inscription inside from your dad to Steve written in 1993. That was a year before I even started working at High Times. And he wrote, to Steve B., here's the new book. Read the new info and keep teaching all the new things. I love you, Jack. And I just realized I had this, and I'm like, man, I got to get, I got to call up Steve Bloom and tell him I have his copy. You know, I mean, I feel bad having a, having a copy that's inscribed to someone else, you know. I, I'm sure I, he appreciated it. Yeah, well, I have, I just found it. I have to come to call him after the interview and let, let him know. Well, I'm sure he'll be excited. Hopefully, hopefully he has another copy he can swap with me. Uh, so, uh, so I'll, so I'll still have a copy. <laughs> so let's talk a little about the politics. Uh, your dad devoted his life to the legalization, the decriminalization of cannabis. Sadly, your dad passed away before the uh, recreational law was passed in Colorado and Oregon. But do you think he would be happy with the state of legalization now? No. I don't think that he'd be happy with the way that things are being set up because it's not exactly legalization. And and I hate the thought that it is not legalization. It is basically uh, paid acceptance the way that I look at it right now. I I believe... uh, it's great that there's access without penalty on most levels, but I think the way that it's gone about becoming accessible without penalty is an incredibly sharp double-edged sword. From the state side, I think it is paid extortion. I think the states are accepting, in a sense, on the legislative level, level that... Uh, Cannabis is is here to stay, and since it's not federally recognized yet on a legal level, that states are allowing people to access because they don't want to be seen as inhuman, 
but because it's not a federally recognized uh, personal right as as a human being, not just as somebody who lives here in the U.S., but since it's not recognized as something that we have the right to have, like a banana or a tomato or grapes uh, as a food or as a product that we can use for our health, I, I think that states look at it as, hey, people are making money off of it. We're going to tax the shit out of it, and they're going to have to pay us if they don't want to go to jail. That's sort of a cut-and-dried version of my view on how states are really abusing the perception of what cannabis is on a national basis right now. And uh, it's a great injustice to all of those who would like to have access to it for medical purposes and for those who would just like to enjoy it, to, you know, have it be a part of their life and a part of the way that, you know, they unwind at the end of the day. And uh, I think, uh, you know, this excessive tax that has been levied on cannabis use and its continued aura of fear that governments continue to press upon in the public's eye that, you know, we still need to be protected from this plant and that we need to control it and we need to somehow continue to penalize and criminalize and prosecute people who don't fit into the uh, I'm going to accept what I get and pay my taxes view. And I I think it's uh, incredibly uh, unjust to create new laws that on one hand give you access, but if you break those rules that they set forth, that now you're a criminal yet again. Um, I, I think for states, it's, it's a win-win because not only do they get these exorbitant taxes uh, based on the laws and accessibility that they put in their local taxes to allow for distribution and, and growth of this plant, but they also continue to feed private prisons by still creating pathways to prison within the laws that they create for accessibility. And I, I think that is absolutely inhumane. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we can't really say that we're moving forward with regards to cannabis laws when we continue to leave those behind that are still in jail for the same things that these marginal laws give us access to without repercussion. You know, that, that I can go into a dispensary and buy cannabis that somebody is dispensing to me and that somebody has been in jail for 10 years or 20 years for the exact same thing. I I don't understand how we're not allowing these nonviolent offenders out of jail on every level within the criminal justice system. I I think that if we're really going to say that we are looking to have access to the ability to to grow this plant, to use this plant, uh, to sell this plant, that we cannot continue to penalize those who weren't the beneficiary of some of these laws. Well said. I agree wholeheartedly. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, there are some that would say it's unrealistic to think that you will ever see cannabis legalized to the extent that a tomato or that oregano is, and that at least that these state laws that have been passed, uh, imperfect as they may be, 
are steps in the right direction and they're keeping some of those people out of jail that would have normally been in jail. And isn't that a positive thing? Isn't that a step forward? Is that a positive thing? Sure. When when people aren't being persecuted or losing their homes or their families or their jobs because of this access, yes, it's a positive thing. But here's my thoughts on this. We, the cannabis fighters, the warriors that continuously approach uh, state legislatures with regards to uh, ballot initiatives, the fact that we are helping to write these laws or these propositions, that still potentially uh, carry pathways to prison and that we're actually behind some of the wording that still allows that kind of description with regards to cannabis, uh, I, I think it, it's hard for me to accept that. I, I understand that states being uneducated would like to try to vilify uh, the use and distribution of cannabis almost on every level, but we as a, a group should never allow public sentiment from the uneducated to creep into what is right, not just what is right for right now. You know, but I, I do understand it, but I don't support it. So, um, for, for instance, in California, I, I know that there is multiple initiatives that are trying to or are already making it onto the ballot for November. Uh, obviously, California tried to pass legalization a few years back, Prop 19. It didn't pass. And part of the reason was because a lot of people said it was badly written and it didn't do enough. Um, which of the California initiatives, and, and I believe they all sound very similar in title, but which of the California initiatives, are there any that you support? Well, there was one called the Cannabis Health and Hemp Initiative. That one was the most simply written. It still put in guidelines for uh, public distribution. Uh, so there would have been regulations with regards to uh, content within the plant, you know, whether uh, it had pesticides or weedicides or any type of other, you know, material within the plant from a public consumption standpoint that would be uh, regulated but that it would also allow for the development of true hemp industries in California, as well as it provided uh, pathways out of prison uh, for those previously convicted on nonviolent uh, offenses with regards to cannabis. And it had the most reasonable definition of access for this plant. I can't say the same for other initiatives, but when you talk about what the financial part of what cannabis is, the people that have money would seek to control as much access to that capital as possible. And that the rules and regulations through uh, lobbyist efforts and legislation efforts within the state would dictate that, again, only a few would really have uh, the power to profit from this. And this is a plant that, you know, this is, in a sense, this is the people's plant. This is this planet's plant. It doesn't belong to any of us. And for those who seek to control its accessibility and to maintain its current price levels with regards to processing and distribution and sales, uh, I, I think that's a great disservice in most ways with regards to 
what this plant is. I mean, to continue to have prices for a basically a food, granted, you could smoke it, but to have prices that are $200 an ounce, $70 for a, a three and a half grams in some cases, I think it's absurd. And, and getting back to comparing it to other foods like, you know, uh, apples or tomatoes, uh, the reality is if there were studies that would be able to prove that uh, a tomato could potentially uh, cure, you know, hideous diseases uh, and affect uh, and treat, you know, a multitude of other diseases, somebody would be saying that tomatoes were too dangerous for any individual to grow and that uh, only certain people should be able to grow this because we wouldn't know how to do it safely enough. And that's certain, that's, that's what they're doing with cannabis. They're not allowing, for the most part, you to be able to maintain your own health by this plant because it's un-American to be able to heal yourself with a plant when pharma and uh, other big business need to be able to capitalize and continue to uh, imprison us financially with regards to the access of a plant that could give us health. Yeah. Seems like uh, most of the problems in this country always go back to the same root cause, which is corporate interests, spending money to in influence, yeah, to influence the process. And greed isn't limited to corporate America. Some of the growers I've heard, because they were worried about their the money that they could charge for their crops dropping, were kind of against Prop 19 too, weren't they? Well, I think that when you look at the black market prices that have developed – uh, because of these laws over the past 40 years, we've gone from a black market society for the most part to this sort of not really gray market anymore. And it's sort of right now, it's more like an off-white market. <laughs> you know, it, it's harder for, for people who have been making all of this money on the black market side to go to a uh, a regular above board market and then realize that if it becomes this market, and it's easier for people to produce, and the and the product could drop because there's more accessibility, there's more product available, that it's not good for their bottom line because they're so used to making all of these huge profits over the past 30, 40 years. And, you know, I understand the need to make money. I believe that all cannabis should be profitable, but I don't believe that we should have gone from being activists against the unjust laws to employing the same protectionist acts moving forward as prohibition created some 80 years ago. I think for us as activists to be a part of anything that continues limitation and denying of, of rights, I think it's a bad move for, for us as a movement. I think that cannabis on a global scale, there's more than enough money to go around. I think that the ordinary farmers should be able to succeed without having to succumb to greed. You know, how much money do we need in order to live in our lives? You know, I, I think all of these companies should be profitable. Profit is not a bad thing, but greed is a It's not the only thing. thing. It's not the only thing. Absolutely. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from Dan Herr here on Blazin.
view of what this cannabis world is, and 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 it cannot just be about profit. It it just can't, you know. And it's not that it's not that profit is bad, but it doesn't have to be this overwhelming control that we'd like to see, you know. And I think one of the prime examples of that is uh, the Orange Center in San Bernardino. Uh, there can't be any other hemp event uh, at that at that facility because High Times has bought the right from the Orange folks to be the only cannabis event at that facility. Yeah. They did that on purpose, obviously, and they did it to force out other events that were there that were being successful. As a matter of fact, they're holding their own competing event on the same weekend that the other event was going to go on. And uh, it's just – it's it's exactly that. It's that corporate – backstabber kind of mentality like where we got to we got to beat out the competition and you know and it's it wasn't always like that i know that it wasn't always like that i mean when we when steve hager was in charge of the magazine uh, it's just you know i'm just listening to too much of of the of the background noise with regards to it but it went from being a real competition to you know something that could be influenced by uh your participation in in advertising uh with a magazine uh, whether it was High Times or any other, you know, well, my father wasn't too happy about it, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't yeah, care he, for the he, way it makes you feel or you or you. No, nah, you know, it's just I, I didn't I wasn't enjoying the high as much anymore as a as a young adult. I, I really enjoyed uh, everything about it, the high, the taste, the smell, the way it, you know, rolling the joints, you know. You know, smoking out of a bong. It was, it was all, you know, it was part of my daily life. Um, but, you know, as I started to get older, it just became more of a hindrance to the other things that I wanted to do. And I wasn't enjoying it as much. So I just stopped doing it. And, uh, you know, for, uh, for a couple of years, my dad really didn't understand it. And he was very upset by it. And, um, you know, I mean, he literally, you know, looked to me and said, where did I go wrong? <laughs> he, he's like, you know, I, I thought I raised you better than that. And, you know, it was, I mean, you know, it's kind of odd. I mean, for me, it was, you know, I, you know, I was the black sheep of the family because I didn't smoke, you know, and, and, you know, it took him a while to kind of get past that, you know, I mean, he would, I would go to his house on many occasions when, you know, he would have uh, guess which he m- mostly did. Anytime you were around my dad, he was around, you know, 10 other people. And, uh, you know, he would introduce my brothers to the people in the room. This is my son, Barry. This is my son, Mark. And this is my son, Dan. He doesn't smoke pot, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I and, can, uh, I can relate because as I've gotten older, my, my usage has gone way down. I, I haven't, stopped but i i still smoke but uh you know i don't smoke nearly the volume that i did when i was younger and i i, I too see that it has it's affected my memory you know uh, negatively it's effect it does affect my concentration negatively in many cases so i really try to i used to be high all day every day and i used to get my job done and do a great job and everything was fine but i, I just can't do that anymore if i get high all day i won't get done what i need to get done so i save it more for the moments when i want to enjoy it you know like after my work's done or if when I'm watching a movie or something like that, you know, those kind of moments right. are, are, are great for it, you know, but, uh, or if I'm writing, if, if my work entails writing, then I can do that. I can take some, you know, take a few hits and, and get creative and focus on, on a story or something. But, 
Um, yeah, but if I have like bills to pay, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to be high and, and dealing with like, you know, talking to, you know, property management people and things like that, you know, you don't want to, yeah. But, um, yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, because there's no way to fill them. And, uh, it's probably one of the reasons why I'm not as, uh, as social as he was with regards to the things that I'm doing within the hemp and cannabis world. Uh, I prefer just, you know, uh, working on, on what I can do to help enact change and accessibility and acceptability, um, within, a within this, you know, global movement. And, uh, I try to do it, um, in a sense as quietly as I can because, uh, there's so many of those who would, you know, uh, like to, to bring that down or to influence how I feel or uh, dictate, you know, the direction that I take. So I, I pretty much stay away from um, the light that my father used to stand in. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, not smoking probably in some ways makes you a better representative to those people you're trying to reach that you were saying because – you can say, look, I don't smoke weed, but I, but I'm still preaching its benefits because of this, this, and this, you know, and that kind of gives you a credibility, I think, with that crowd. And, and to me, besides, one of the things about cannabis activists, it's not just about the cannabis, it's, and normal exemplifies this, in, and, and I've always appreciated this aspect. It's about having the right to do with your own body what you want to do. It's about the freedom of making personal choices. And so it's not just about, oh, whether you smoke pot or not, it's about having the right to smoke pot or the right not to smoke pot. And if pot's not, if you feel it's not right for you or you don't like it, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? It's the same with alcohol. It, you know, unfortunately, yeah. and it's the same with tobacco. You know, I can't sit there and tell somebody, you know, you can't smoke tobacco. You can't have a drink. Um, you know, the, the, you know, cannabis and hash and other forms of, of this plant have been used for, you know, thousands of years in social environments, in medicinal environments, in, you know, in industrial environments, and they all need to be embraced. You know, they don't necessarily all need to be uh, supported by your personal beliefs, but the access to it needs to be everybody's, you know, it needs to belong to everybody. You know, yeah. it needs to, you know, if you choose to engage, great. If you choose to not, then that's fine. Um, you know, it, it, it really becomes a, a personal choice, not something that should be, um, you know, directed by uh, somebody's, you know, personal view. Yeah, I agree. Well, Dan, it's been, it's been really great talking to you. Um, I do, uh, I do have to, uh, get going, but I really appreciate again, you, uh, taking time to talk to me and, uh, I hope that we will, I know you don't go to many cannabis events, but <laughs> I hope that we'll bump well, into actually, each other. I mean, I do go to them. I just don't really participate the way, I mean, I don't take the stage the way my father did. I don't, you know, I don't stand there and, and, and beat the podium and scream at the top of my lungs. Uh, I, I, I speak a lot softer than my father did. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just more of who I am. I mean, I have spoke at events. I went to Morocco and spoke at an event there a few months ago. Yeah, that's cool. And, uh, fortunately, uh, some very positive things came out of that with regards to, uh, what the government, uh, of Morocco is 
thinking about doing uh, with regards to uh, their, you know, standing cannabis laws uh, against, uh, you know, uh, the use of hash and the development of Keith in their company in their country, and they're finally, you know, they're talking about, um, you know, creating, um, you know, hash bed and breakfasts and, you know, having access for tourists, you know, not for export, but just to be able wow. to come and and participate in what's been part of their culture for thousands of years. And uh, that was a great, that was a great thing uh, for, for me to be a part of with the amazing people that came to speak to their, their government leaders and their decision makers there, including, you know, their, you know, I want to say their, their president slash minister of the of the area, who's you know now talking uh, in support of their their cannabis growers, who are some of the poorest people in, in Morocco, and how they they can start you know possibly being able to you know, feed their families from this plant without being prosecuted, and I think it's a beautiful thing. That's awesome. you know, but you know these are small victories. Um, but they mean a lot, you know, even because they're they're not focused on in the news. They're not, you know, they're not being, uh, you know, headlined anywhere because, you know, nobody in in the controlling, you know, environment of the world really wants to see this plant uh, have great access until they figured out a way how to control it themselves, so they themselves can profit from it and nobody else. Yeah. Well, hash bed and breakfast in Morocco. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Yeah, I, I I happened to go in the down season, so there wasn't a lot of hash around. Uh, it had all been exported already, but I met plenty of growers. I met plenty of families of growers, and plenty that supported uh, hashish uh, in Morocco. And and uh, I got to tell you, the people in Morocco were absolutely amazing. Um. And I, I hope to go back there sometime in the, in the near future. Cool. I've never been, but yeah. I, I would love to go uh, sometime. I can tell you, if, if more Americans can go to Morocco, they would have a much deeper appreciation for those of the Muslim faith. Um, because uh, I, I was incredibly welcome there, and I felt safe everywhere I went. And, uh, you know, I engaged, you know, people on the street to people who owned hotels and they were all incredibly gracious and kind and, um, you know, knew I was an American and had no ill thoughts one way or the other, you know, and it was, uh, it was truly a, a welcoming environment. And I think, uh, this world needs a lot more, uh, access to the reality of things, not what is just, you know, printed or said in the news. Yeah, for sure. Well, I hope Bernie uh, Sanders helped uh, rile some people up and point out some of the problems in our system, and uh, hopefully we can keep that you know that spirit that Occupy Wall Street and Bernie have captured and keep that moving forward because I think that's the only the only thing that's going to save our country and our world if, is is that belief that we're in it together and not not just that profit motive is not the only thing driving the world. Well, we as a cannabis movement could have something to do with it if we are diligent enough and committed enough not to fall prey to the the business practices that have gotten us to the point that we are in this world today. It's true. You know, 
With that being said, brother, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Um, you know, if you have the ability to to get me an audio track of this that I can use any of the excerpts, I, I you know, on the foundation's website, I'd certainly appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. The episode will be up uh, on iTunes and on on my podcast network's website uh, on Tuesday, and uh, I can just shoot you uh, an MP3 of it if if you want. That's fine. Or you can or yeah, you can or you can post you, a link wanna, to it if you want to share your podcast on Facebook, and that way you know I can repost it the day that it's going on. I will. So the people that are that are looking on on Facebook can uh, you know tap onto it. And, and take a listen. Um, I, I, I don't really know much about social media. Uh, so anything that you can do to help me get you more listeners on the day that it posts, and, and that, that works for me. Okay, great. Well, I'll just, I'll, when I post it, I will tag you and post it on your wall and then you'll see it and you'll be able to do, you know, share it and stuff. All righty. All right. Well, have a great day. Happy Father's Day. And uh, I hope, uh, I hope to bump into you soon in, in, uh, at an event or something. Yeah, are you planning to be at any? You said you're just moving to to LA. Well, I my wife and I moved to SoCal last month, but we're not in LA. We're down in Temecula, uh, so we're about oh, Temecula's a great area. Yeah, yeah, we're down there, so uh, it is nice here. Um, but it's a little bit of a tr- you know a little trek up to LA, hour and a half to two hour drive. But um, yeah, I'm going to be. Are at- you going to be at the event in San Bernardino? I believe uh, so. Yeah, I believe so. It's going to be at the San Bernardino. Uh, fairgrounds, right? You talking about Chalice, or are you talking about the High Times event? No, the the Chalice event. Yeah, um, I think it's at the fairgrounds, and I am going to try to go to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, then you and I will run into each other there because I will definitely be there. Okay, great. Well, I'll shoot you a text if I go there, and we can hopefully meet up. And then, um, when, when's the High Times event? Uh, the week after <laughs> at the Nas Center. The week after they actually tried to make it the same weekend as the chalice to try to like steal their thunder but i guess the vendors were pissed because the vendors were like we're already committed to chalice we can't be at both events at the same time so they actually forced high times to move the event which i think and and honestly people are going to start taking a really uh strong position against high times if they uh continue to try to be disruptive they already are Uh, you know there, there has to there has to be a way for all of us to to coincide to be part of this movement without being destructive. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope, I hope they take a better path than what they've been on lately. But we'll see. All right, Dan. I'll uh I'll hopefully see you at Chalice then. All right. I would look forward to it. Take Thank care. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Be well. Bye bye. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, 
offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. All right, and we are back with Dan Herrer, son of the late, great Jack Herrer, the godfather of the hemp and cannabis legalization movement. Your dad started to fall ill in, uh, I think the first time he got sick was in 2000. Was it he suffered a, a, a stroke or a heart attack or both? No, he suffered a stroke, a stroke in the early 2000s. Yeah, I remember I saw him, I don't know if it was maybe a year afterwards, but he had started making remarkable progress. When he first came back to the High Times office, he was speaking very well again, very understandably, and he told us that his rapid recovery was due to a daily regiment of Amanita muscaria mushrooms. This was actually the first time that I learned the uh, concept and the term of microdosing. Can you tell us a little about, do you know about his uh, treatment with the mushrooms? <laughs> Sadly, I, I don't know of his treatment. My father was uh, a big fan of mushrooms and cannabis and other substances throughout his life. Uh, I think uh, experimentation uh, has been probably a part of most of our lives. Um, I don't know. Uh, specifically uh, what he did. Uh, I know that he struggled with, you know, re-engaging his, his voice the way that he would have liked. And it became a, a, a very deliberate act for him where previously it was very easy for him to speak. So I, I, I remember my father on a much different level with regards to his ability to uh, eloquently speak about the things and, and issues that he believed in. I guess it must be hard being someone who's used to being a public speaker to lose that ability to communicate in as clear a way. But I do remember he, he had made huge strides. Uh, I saw him uh, at the Seattle Hemp Fest in 2008. High Times was sharing a booth with Normal and our booth was kind of attached to his booth by the stage. And uh, I was uh, working there all day, and I remember that uh, we were passing joints with each other all day and, and having a great time. And at one point, like it was just before 4.20, we saw this giant, gigantic joint crowd surfing its way towards us. And uh, it was it was being it was being billed as the world's largest joint at the time. And anyway, sure enough, the crowd brought it right to Jack, 
<laughs> and he got up and took a big hit off of it and coughed his brains out and uh, everybody cheered the whole crowd went nuts and uh, I got to hit it a little bit later after that, but uh, I, that was one of my favorite memories. Uh, it was getting to hang out with him all day and, and seeing him hit that big joint. I got a kick out of it. I might even have it on uh, video somewhere. I'm going to have to look that for that. That would be a sight to see. I, I, would, I would love to see that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, of course, in uh, September of 2009, Jack was at another hemp festival in Hempstock in Portland, when he collapsed shortly after leaving the stage, uh, giving a rousing speech, of course, doing what he does best, and was hospitalized. And unfortunately, uh, he remained hospitalized for some time until his passing on April 15th of 2010, just five days short of 420. You know, there's, uh, of course, you know, for years now, there's been a growing movement within the community to officially name April 20th Jack Haraday. I've been a supporter of that for a long time, and I, I hope that comes to fruition at some point. I believe that he, as well as my family, would be incredibly humbled that that may happen. But it's it's not something that hasn't crossed my mind uh, as I've heard it talked about here and there. But right now, I, I sort of see every day, in, in a sense, as Jack Haraday, because it doesn't matter... Uh, what time of the year uh, that it is when there is a hemp event, when there is a conference, when there's a coalition, when there is meetings, when there's a celebration. I see my father in every one of those days, and I see uh, the work that he and many, many others are responsible for building the foundation for to allow these events to be part of uh, our continuing education and moving uh, what is the, the, the cannabis and hemp movement forward. He's already been honored in many ways. Speaking of events, I believe there's a Jack Herrer Cup held in Las Vegas each year. Um, there's been murals painted of him. Uh, of course, he's been in high times many, many times. He's been on the cover a number of times. And of course, I think the most lasting tribute, and probably, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that one I think he would get the most kick out of, is the strain named after him. The strain was, uh, of course, created by his friends at the Sensi Seed Bank in Holland, and it's a sativa-dominant cross between skunk number one, haze, and northern lights. It's one of the most award-winning strains that uh, that's ever existed. It's won 11 High Times Cannabis Cups, beginning with the cup that it was introduced in in 1994. And it's interesting, 1994 was the first time the cup was open to the public in Amsterdam, and it was my first cannabis cup in Amsterdam. And uh, I remember meeting your dad for the first time and just being like in awe of, not in awe of, I mean, he was a very humble, down-to-earth guy. Uh, he wasn't like the kind of guy who strikes awe into you unless you're hearing him speak on stage maybe, but I was in awe because of, you know, it was his book that had gotten me involved in cannabis, and here I was working at High Times and meeting the author of the book, but I had this really great humanizing moment with him that I'll always remember. We were at the hotel, we were downstairs uh, in the lobby eating breakfast, getting ready for the day, and your dad came down, and he came in looking like Oscar Madison from The Odd Couple. He had his hair was messy, he had his bathrobe on, and he got some breakfast, and he sat down right at my table, like right across from me, and just had a really nice chat over breakfast, and I remember sitting there thinking like, 
wow, I can't believe Jack Harris sat at my table. This is so cool, you know? But he didn't, you know, like, he was just, he was just Jack. He wasn't, uh, there was no pretense. There was no ego. And, you know, with so many people in the cannabis movement over the years, a lot of people let their egos get in the way, let's say, of the movement. But that never happened with your dad, as far as I could tell. Yeah, I I didn't see a tremendous amount of ego. I I did, uh, however know that he was incredibly confident about how he felt, what he was saying, and uh, to some that may have come across as ego, but for my father it was just an unbending ability to just say what needed to be said, uh, whether you liked it or not. Not to say that he, you know he didn't have an ego, I, I think that he probably did have a little bit of, uh, of one, but it wasn't one based on I'm better than you or, um, you know, because uh, the way he conducted himself, the way that he talked to people in general was really amazing. You know, uh, for many years, uh, my father uh, lived in and amongst the, the, the streets and and, uh, and homes and apartments within Venice. And uh, for those years that he was down at the Venice Beach area, educating folks along the beach. I saw him uh, engage uh, everybody uh, from uh, celebrities to those who were very wealthy uh, to those who were, who were homeless on the street. And he gave everybody the same amount of credibility with their voice. Uh, and he didn't distinguish whether uh, you were uh, somebody of means or somebody you know, who'd been knocked down and had been struggling. You know, he gave everybody an equal opportunity to to believe in this movement and to become a part of it uh, without reservation. And, you know, his kindness and his inspiration to those from all walks of life uh, is what stays with me. There was no difference. We are just the people fighting for this God-given right to be able to use this plant. And, uh, you know, the way that he treated people, um, the way that, you know, he would invite whomever to come and break bread with him was always humbling to me. And it reminded me that, you know, we are all the same. And he had a great way of, of demonstrating that without having to say anything about it. I got the same sense from him as well. Did you ever feel a sense of duty being the son of someone like Jack Herr to kind of follow in his footsteps and carry on his work? Um, I don't really feel a sense of duty other than I have a responsibility that if I am involved, that I have to hold myself accountable for the things that I do, that I have to be responsible in every way that I can to do things that would never embarrass my father. So in that sense, you know, I, I do feel obligated to his memory, but I use what he did and how he did things as inspiration and a guideline for myself that we need to be better, that we could do things better, that as we become an industry, we're not quite an industry yet, but we're getting there, that as we become an industry that is becoming part of uh, the American financial growth or even worldwide growth, that we have an obligation to be the best businesses that we can with the best business.
regards to how we make money, what we do with the money that is made from the, the ability to be able to use and grow this plant and to be able to succeed uh, with our businesses, not by what we control, but how we contribute. Well, I know that you have uh, carried on his work in many ways and become a great activist in your own right. Uh, and so thank you for that. And I'm sure he's very proud of you. So what do we need to look out for moving forward as we talk about becoming an industry, as you just said? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to remember that this doesn't belong to us, that we have the responsibility to this plant and to this planet to do the best things that we can for all human beings. And and that is regardless of whether they support hemp, cannabis, or, or, or the medicinal aspects of this plant. Because, you know, whether somebody's uneducated and they're fighting against us tooth and nail, the reality is, is that this plant is beneficial to all of us, whether you believe in it or not. And as businesses, as educators, as believers in, in what can be, um, we just need to make sure that we employ the best practices. You know, I mean, we are going to be the most scrutinized, the most vilified uh, businesses as this develops over the next 10 or 20 years. And the the way to break down uh, these walls of ignorance between those who believe and understand the plan and those who don't um, is one, continued education, uh, and two, making sure that we don't become the stereotypical persona of what the worst in these people's thoughts are about what we are as an industry. You know, and the way that we do that is by if we're making money from this plant, that we're making sure that we're doing the best for humanity, that we, we take some of our profits, irregardless of whether they're tax deductions, and give back to communities, donate uh, to our local schools, donate, donate to uh, charities, um, become uh, engaged in your communities uh, that you are building your businesses in. And and making sure, uh, not that you have to promote this, because, I mean, the word will get out whether you you become a self-promotional uh, company or not, um, but giving back from this plant, from a place of being part of the community, being responsible for that community, being responsible uh, and and represent what this plant is, and that is life, you know, on so many different levels. And if we can set an example of how businesses that actually make money behave, it might help us to embarrass those who solely use their business for profit, uh, regardless of how it affects communities. And uh, I think uh, that those business practices need to be really vigilantly demonstrated and protected and, and not to take advantage of what this plant has the opportunity to do from a financial standpoint. Other than that, from the educational side, you know, I, I see multiple groups of people go to state legislatures and and go to uh, you know the halls of Congress and send people in to represent the interests of cannabis. 
in their in their areas in their states. And it doesn't matter at this point how many people you send to sit in front of these uh, lawmakers. And you can have the best educators. You can have the best scientists. You can have the best doctors. You can have the most successful business people with regards to what cannabis is. Um, and you can show state legislature all of this great information. And those who are sitting there listening to it as they're being educated will go, this is incredible information. I love what this plant can do. However, the people that put me here don't really support what it is that you're speaking about. So therefore, I really can't act on your behalf within the state or within the government. And I, I think we're going to continue to hit that wall uh, until we can create a way to educate those on the far right, those who have no understanding and, and no you know, capability uh, to engage what the real effects of the use of this plant are. And until we can engage those folks, until we can educate those folks, uh, within these areas, even if it's not on the medicinal or recreational side, which is not the most important thing. You know, if we engage uh, farmers, those that are in the Bible Belt that believe that, you know, the smoking of cannabis is a sin and the use of this is absurd and that, you know, the medical use is a big fraud, you know, if we can engage them in a way that affects their lives, you know, when you when you go to their communities and you say, these products can be made, you know, and you ask people, you know, do you, do you know anybody who drives a Mercedes or a BMW or, you know, does anybody use this lotion? And and you engage them in a sense of, well, you know, you know, the interiors of Mercedes and BMWs have been primarily made from hemp for the last seven years. And that, you know, they make the vehicle lighter and more fuel efficient and safer for the occupant and more ecologically saner, you know, that from a sense of how these products are affecting their lives or the people that they know in a way that is not predicated on recreational use or medical accessibility. And you get them to understand that this plant is something that could put farmers back to work and pay for mortgages and farms, send their kids to college if areas are allowed to embrace this plant and use it for every other reason other than medicinal or recreational use and have it contribute to their communities, to their society, to their state, and get them to understand that all of the things that they've been fighting against, we all talk about global warming, we all talk about toxins, we all talk about these products that come from China that are poisoned by contaminants, and there's an answer. And that answer is to grow a safe product, to use it, to put Americans back to work, to put, in a sense, people around the globe to work, you know, to reduce global warming, help clean our air, to reduce environmental pollutions, you know, engage them on that level. And if they can open up to that on some small scale and embrace that, that maybe they'll start reading into how come I didn't know this? How come I didn't know that we could make plastics from this or the paint that I'm on my house could be made non-toxic and biodegradable that, you know, oils and sealants and papers and all of these things can be done uh, in a very real way. When you show them, you know, we can take them into 
uh, you know, industry and show them that these parts are being made, that these products are being made, and they're affecting change on a global scale and get them to think about cannabis and hemp in a different sense. Then when we do go and we and we bring these people to our state legislature to ask and to show them that that cannabis needs their support, uh, and we we engage them and educate them instead of being able to point back to their constituents and saying that their constituents don't support them, so therefore they can't support us. If we inform their constituents, then they will stand up and they will support. So instead of trying to win state by state by attrition and just by breaking it down like, okay, fine, we'll legalize in this state because we need the tax money, we get past that and people will start legalizing in states and making new laws that are better laws that are not in conflict with human development and human rights. And we can make better laws and we can make a better country and in turn make a better world. Amen, brother. <laughs> wow. Well, it sounds like your uh, your dad's legacy is in very good hands, my friend. Uh, we are definitely out of time. Um, I Where can people go to learn more about you and your dad and your efforts uh, for legalization online? Well, I'm sad to say I'm not as involved in a public manner as my father was. Um, I try to do my best behind the scenes. I've, I've created uh, a foundation in his name, uh, and unfortunately, it's very difficult to get that foundation funded. It's called the Jack Herrer Foundation. Uh, it is an educational foundation, as I would hope he would be proud of. And uh, my goal with that foundation is exactly what we just spoke about, uh, and that is not necessarily to go to hemp events and try to educate the masses that are already part of this choir you know, that we call, you know, activists or the hemp movement. Uh, even though most of the choir in this case still don't know the songs, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to preach to this choir. I need to be able to go to those who don't believe in, that don't support, that, that don't, uh, stand up for the rights of all people. You know, they only, you know, want to prohibit the, the development of this plant. And I want to go to them and I want to educate them on a, on a level that matters to them. And the Jack Herr Foundation, I hope uh, in the next year, we'll be able to have a mobile education center that will do exactly that. Is there a website for the foundation? There is a website for the foundation. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a one-man foundation at this point. There's a Facebook, uh, the Jack Herr Foundation, there's also, you can go to the jackherrerfoundation.com. If they wanted to call the Jack Herrer Foundation in order to offer support, uh, that number is 855-JACK-420. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Dan, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really great talking about your dad, his legacy, and your life. Uh, I was privileged to be able to call your dad a friend, and I'm privileged to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, blessings to you, and a happy Father's Day, or happy, belated Father's Day. And happy Father's Day to you. All right, brother. Be well. Take care. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this special extended Father's Day edition of Blazin'. 
For more about Jack Herr and his career and legacy, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazingwithbb. And don't forget to follow me on social media, Twitter, at Bobby Black, Facebook, Instagram, Bobby Black 420 Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Bobby Black saying, Blaze on, brothers and sisters. 